Welcome to the Global Elections Podcast. I'm Jason Manchester. Since 2014, Thailand has been under the control of a military dictatorship. The military took power following a prolonged period of political crisis, a crisis which, depending on how you look at it, has been going on for more than a decade. On August 7th, the state will hold a referendum to pass changes to its constitution, but this referendum is being held in the dark. There are restrictions on publishing criticism of the content of the constitutional package, and it is illegal to campaign for a no vote. Prominent dissidents have been jailed, and the press has been silenced. The military government has said that the changes proposed in the referendum are designed to promote stability. The critics of the vote have said that the changes are designed to institutionalize the power of the military and to undercut democracy. Today, we'll be looking at Thailand's recent political history and asking the question, can you have a vote without a campaign? In elections in 2001, the party of businessman Thaksin Shinawatra was elected in a landslide. He controlled a wide majority of seats and tended to promote policies that favored the rural areas and the urban poor in a largely populist platform that involved improving education and health care. His administration was deeply controversial, and in spite of his popularity, there was a strong reaction against his policies in conservative circles. In 2005, and again in elections in 2006, Thaksin was re-elected. However, ongoing street protests forced him from power. He left the country, and shortly after, the military staged a coup. The election was then legally invalidated by the Constitutional Court, a judicial body with jurisdiction over acts of parliament and the government. In the West, the coup was presented as a reaction of the people to what seemed to be a corrupt sale of state assets to a private company. The real reasons, however, were a bit deeper. It is in this moment, with the duly elected government of Thailand being pushed from power, that we start to see the main cleavage in Thai politics, the red shirts and the yellow shirts. The red shirts, by and large, are supporters of Thaksin. They find themselves broadly on the left, but we could understand them as populists. The yellow shirts were also united by Thaksin. They formed late in the Thaksin administration to carry the standard of opposition to his policies. They were largely responsible for the protests that led to the coup in 2006. They are a right-wing coalition of nationalists, hard royalists, and the urban middle class. This group was deeply skeptical of Thaksin. They accused him of corruption and considered him to be disloyal to the Thai monarchy. The rallying point here is the Thai king. Yellow is the color of the royal family. After a year and a half of military rule, new elections were called in 2007. Thaksin was in exile and his party was officially banned, but his movement continued. The leaders of his party took over a different, smaller party from the previous election, and, in the election of 2007, the Reform Party of Red Shirts won a majority government. It didn't take long for the Yellow Shirts to begin new street protests to try to unseat the sitting government. Under pressure, the Constitutional Court once again dissolved the ruling Red Shirt Party under charges of election fraud. The opposition Democrat Party, who had been a part of the Yellow Shirt protests, became the government. Over the next two years, the opposition Democrat Party who had been a part of the yellow shirt protests, became the government. Over the two years that the Democrats led the government, it was the red shirt's turn to take to the streets in protest. The red shirt movement took over streets and set up protest camps in a bid to force the government to hold early elections. In the government's attempt to break up the protests, dozens were killed. In 2011, these ongoing protests forced the yellow shirt government to hold early elections. 
These elections were won in a landslide by a redshirt party under the leadership of Thaksin's sister, Yinglak Shinawatra. Her government was considered at the time to be a movement towards stability, and the stock market rose after it was announced that she would form a majority government with opposition parties in a grand coalition. However, over the next three years of her premiership, the political instability returned. In 2013, a legislative bill that would have granted blanket amnesty for political crimes sparked street protests on both sides. The bill was designed to amnesty the Prime Minister's brother, former Prime Minister Taksin, but also the Democrat Party ministers for their crackdown on protesters in 2010. The Democrat Party ministers resigned and led widespread protests against the government, trying once again to force new elections. This was coordinated with large-scale denial-of-service attacks on government websites. In December of 2013, the Prime Minister called for new elections in February of 2014. However, by January, the country had descended into chaos as new protests began. The elections were held once again, and again, the Red Shirts won. Keep in mind that they have won every election since 2001. Shortly after the election, though, the Constitutional Court removed Yingluck from her position as Prime Minister and removed a handful of allied senators. All were removed for reasons not related to the 2014 election. Protests continued as a new Prime Minister was installed. In May of 2014, shortly after the Prime Minister was removed, for the 19th time in the last 100 years, the military declared martial law and took power. <laughs> The Yellow Shirts are, at their core, a royalist movement. The Thai monarchy has been at the center of Thai politics for two centuries. In any of Thailand's various constitutions, the monarchy is given a central place. Although since 1932 it has been a constitutional monarchy, it still retains the right to veto legislation and the right to a royal pardon. More importantly, it commands a central position beyond its legal authority. Every government needs to be seen to have the support of the monarchy. And even in any of Thailand's 19 military coups, the generals are always eager to present themselves as following the will of the king. They will always seek consent from the king to legitimize their seizure of power, although the king has been largely absent in the last two military coups in 2014 and in 2006. This may be a political statement, however it may also be that the king has been sick since 2009 and largely absent from the political sphere. At this time, Thailand is waiting for the old king to pass on so that his heir can take power. The military government has been delaying the return to democracy, and it has been suggested that they are waiting for the new king to be installed. Any discussion of the Thai monarchy often begins with a statement that they are overwhelmingly popular and have a broad support within the Thai public. However, there is little reliable public opinion polling data, as far as we can tell, to draw from. And it's hard to ascertain the true popularity of the king due to the fact that the royal family is protected by less majesté laws, which protect the monarchy from criticism with threats of imprisonment. And this isn't as strange as it sounds. It's important to note that these laws are in place and still used in monarchies around the world, including neighboring Malaysia, Gulf monarchies like Kuwait, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia, and European constitutional monarchies like Denmark, Spain, and the Netherlands. A similar but rarely used law was struck down in Scotland as late as 2010. Importantly, people have been charged with offenses under the Les Majesté laws for making public statements saying that the Les Majesté law should be changed or scrapped. These laws create a lack of transparency not only for the royal family, but for the state as a whole.
สูงสูงร่ำรวยล้นฟ้าอิทธิฤทธิ์บุญญาบารมีเนื้อหมดเกณฑ์สั่งเป็นสั่งตายดังใจปรารถนาแต่เลวชั่วช้าอย่าได้วิภาพิจาร It's nothing new then that Thailand's constitutional referendum is being held in the dark. Officially, campaigning is prohibited on both sides. In reality, however, the no side seems to be the target of restrictions, as the military has sent out local representatives to promote a yes vote. Dissident news organizations have reported that at least 122 people have been arrested on charges of sedition or violating the referendum law. Public debates may be allowed on a limited basis. However, these would need to be approved by the military. Polling in this referendum is difficult, as we can assume that most Thais would be unwilling to risk jail time to respond to a survey. Because of this, it's impossible to judge whether a referendum will pass. The polls that have been done, however, show a great deal of undecided votes, but this could mean anything. This new constitution will prevent elected governments from interfering with the current military government's 20-year development plan. This means that if there were a return to democracy, the military would still heavily influence policy. The military would, under the proposed constitution, be able to appoint a 250-person Senate, with six seats reserved for senior military members. There is a question on the ballot that would allow the Senate to name a prime minister in the event of a parliamentary deadlock. The military has made it clear that they will retain a considerable influence in the government no matter what the outcome of the referendum. The prime minister, General Prayut, has said that if the people reject the constitutional amendments, he will simply move forward with his own changes. To discuss the current situation in Thailand, we contacted Pavin Chachaval Pongpan, a professor living in exile in Japan. Hello, professor. Hi, Jason. Let me let me just dive right into it. You're living in exile. The Thai military government has revoked your passport yep. and issued a warrant for your arrest. Can you tell us a bit about your personal situation and how you got to this point? Sure, I'll be brief. Uh, I mean, I have been an, an academic for quite some time now. Moving to Japan in 2012, and as always, I have been very critical of the monarchy and the Thai military. So when the coup took place in May 2014, I'm sure that the coup maker already had certain people in the list, the people whom they think that they have to punish or they have they want to prosecute. And I can elaborate more along the way why they want to prosecute and uh, to punish. My name is in the list. So two days after the coup in May 2014, uh, the, the junta uh, summoned me for the first time. Obviously, I rejected I rejected the summon because uh, I believe I did not do anything wrong and because I do not accept uh, the legitimacy of the coup. Uh, after the first summon, a week later, then came the second summon. Once again, I rejected. Because of that, the junta decided to issue a warrant for my arrest and a month later, around July of 2014, revoked my passport. This situation forced me to apply for a refugee status with the Japanese government. And because of that, I have not been, been able to return home. Uh, I think on top of that, not just only about uh, me, uh, how to say, rejecting the summons, but there have been an attempt on the part of the junta to try to charge me with less majeste as well. Less majeste is a crime uh, for uh, insulting uh, the monarchy, which could be subject to uh, between 3 to 15 years in prisons. Of course, you know, as an academic, as a, profess as a professor, and I teach Thai politics, it is, you know, in inevitable. 
to talk about the Thai monarchy, and because of that, they also want to charge me with less majesty too. Let me ask you about the less majesty laws. As far as I can see, this has been used against a lot of the opponents of the military government. Um, that seems to be their their go to um, way of of cracking down on the opposition. Can you tell me a bit about the less majesty laws and how does it help the military government to keep control uh, to use this this tactic? You are so right that uh, the less majesty law, in fact, since the first coup, I mean that not only the first coup because Thailand we have so many coups. <laughs> uh, I mean the 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 coup in 2006, when I said the first coup, that meant, it, it meant that it was that coup that really caused Thailand political crisis. But after the coup of 2006, that's when we started to see uh, more and more people being charged with less majesty. With less majesty. Uh, again, as I said, you are so right, you know, in, in a sense that less majesty law has been used as a weapon to undermine, you know, political opponents. And it can be done so easily. There are so many how to say, flaws in the law, but I can I can just I can just want to highlight two points. One is that anyone could go to the police station and file a complaint against others. So it's open to anyone, you know, to use the law for political purpose. The other one is the severity of the sentence, as I said, between three to fifteen years. Uh, I have seen so many cases that you know. Uh, most of the of, of the people who have been accused usually being sentenced to the maximum. Some people end, ended up having to serve something like eighty years in jail because of the because of the the violation of the law. Uh, well, I mean, the military have been trying very hard, you know, in taking control of uh, political power, and they have they have been doing this through a variety of channels, you know. For example, using the using the military coup in order to take control. Uh, sometimes they use uh, the hand of the judiciary. Uh, in Thailand, we call judicial coup, especially the in- intervention of the constitutional court. You know, again, since the coup of 2006, we have seen more and more cases of the intervention of the court in politics. And in Thailand, we know that the courts have been working on behalf of the old establishment. Well, apart from the coup, the court, Less majesty law is another weapon. And I would say that this is the last resort for both the military and the monarchy to use this, you know, in order to defend themselves from, you know, any kind of threat. But of course, this is a double sword, double-edged sword. The more you use it, the more it would cause a damage to the monarchy. And as an academic, you know, I have been saying this for a long, long time that it would be counterproductive for the military and the monarchy to continue to use the less majesty law because that would lead to the decreasing of respect for the people, for the monarchy. That would lead the people to see it more clearly, the extent to which the monarchy have become involved into politics. Let me ask you about the upcoming referendum. Can you tell us about the, the contents of the military's constitutional package? Uh, this is a constitution that would preserve the, the power into the hand of the old establishment rather than paving the way for greater democratization as the military has often claimed. For example, you know, I, I could I could talk a lot about the you know certain provisions that seem to suggest what I said. For example, that's an, an attempt to empower you know the Senate to also empower other independent organizations because these are crucial institution that would work, you know, to counterweight 
future civilian government, and uh, it had proven effective, you know, in the previous administration under Ying Lak government when the Senate was so powerful that the Senate would reject almost everything that the government had proposed. So I mean, this this continued to be the trend for the establishment to use uh, this kind of institution to cultivate uh, future. Uh, government, other independent organizations, for example, Constitutional Court, the National Anti-Corruption Commission, uh, the Human Rights Commission, the Election Commission, all these kind of commission, you know, they're supposed to be independent, <laughs> as we call them independent organization, but in fact, they are not really independent, right? This is one thing. Uh, there's also an attempt, you know, to, uh, to encourage more independent candidates to run in the election so that this independent candidate would eventually sit in the parliament. Why this is so important? Because in the more independent independent candidate also mean that they will have more forces in the parliament. Uh, and these forces would help break down the domination of powerful political party like that of Thaksin Chinawat and Ying Lak Chinawat. They have been aware uh, of the fact that Thaksin's party won every single election since 2001 led to the latest in 2011 and they won landslide election and because of that they occupy the majority in the parliament so the, the old establishment felt that you know by encouraging this independent candidate it would as i said reduce the influence of taxing party in parliament and lastly uh, this is one of the key points as well in the in the constitution that future prime minister need not be elected member parliament so again this would pave the way for old generals someone from the military <laughs> to just march right. in to become a prime minister without having to be elected so i mean these are kind of like essence of uh, the constitution that that's that explains why many thai you know have come out to reject uh, the first draft, and I'm sure that they would reject the second draft. This, to you, is an attempt to disempower democratic institutions and to break down the party system. They're definitely, and they have been doing it quite cleverly, especially, you know, doing through the highest, how to say, legal institution in Thailand. You know, constitution is the highest institution, of course, in almost every country anyway. I think this also uh, go together, go really well with a new argument about the emerging of deep state, you know, people, a lot of, a lot more people now, academics, started to talk about deep state in Thailand. Deep state means the transfer of political power from the network monarchy into the hand of the judiciary. Because uh, right now we are, we arrive at the twilight of uh, King Huipon and the reign. And everyone in Thailand know that the king has been politically powerful throughout, you know, four or five decades. Uh, he has called a shot. He's the one who also endorsed military coups, a series of military coups. But again, you know, we are coming to the end of his era. So the old power fear that the power of the king would also disappear. So because of that, they tried to transfer uh, the king's authority into the hand of the judiciary. And that's why we have seen the role of the constitutional court for its intervention into politics. And I think, you know, to try to write a constitution this way, it would also correspond with uh, the way talking about the deep state earlier of uh, mm -hmm. trying to uh, empower, you know, this judicial branch. I think this has been the trend in Thailand. You've kind of anticipated one of my questions. Um, I'm sure you were following uh, events in Egypt in the wake of the military coup in 2013. 
when uh, the Islamists were removed and, and kind of created the, the current administration of President Sisi. Some have said that the, the Egyptian military coup was inevitable because of that, that military had too much, that, that deep state had too much to lose under a democratic system. Do you believe because of that, that the coup in Thailand was inevitable? Uh, well, I think this is a very difficult question. You know, if I say yes, which means that somehow I legitimize uh, the military intervention in politics. Let me put it this way. I think both the military and civilian government, they were equally to be blamed. Let's put it that way. You know, for the military, of course, uh, the military intervention into politics it has become Thailand's political culture for so long. And, you know, since uh, the revolution in 1932, which abolished, you know, absolute monarchy, since that moment onward, we have seen the role of the military, you know, in politics. And the Thai people have been unable to uh, push the military out of politics. The, the role of the military has further guarantees following the, the alliance between the military and monarchy from the 1960 onwards as well, you know, for the military uh, to justify itself by, you know, arguing that, it has to defend the position of the monarchy. And because of the monarchy has been the most important, one of the most important, you know, institutions in Thailand, because of that, it kind of like legitimized the role of the military in politics. And that's why, you know, you could say that the military has a fair share in the political power. And because of that, maybe the, the, the role of the military in politics is inevitable. But you also have to blame the civilian government as well, in a sense that you know, a series of these civilian government have not been strong enough you know, in order to draw a clear line between what should belong to, you know, the ministry and what should belong to the government. Uh, in fact, you know, there had been, again, attempts of the, of the civilian government to continue to please the ministry so as to ensure that they would not be overthrown in a military coup. And by pleasing, you know, the military, you know, they kind of like guarantee the military's uh, position in politics as well. For example, uh, a lot of civilian government would not want to, to, to interfere into the military affair, whereas, you know, this kind of military affair was supposed to be the responsibility of the civilian government. For example, reshuffle in the military, for example, uh, to set up the budget for the defense. You know, in any other country, this is the responsibility of the civilian government. But in Thailand, this remains strictly military affair. No, I mean, what I'm trying to say in brief here is that, yeah, the Syrian government seem, seem to be okay, you know, to, to allow the military to march into politics every now and then. And on top of that, you know, the, this Syrian government have been reluctant also to strengthen democratic institutions. By strengthening democratic institutions, automatically it would weaken the role of the military in politics. But that never happened in Thailand. I got one last question for you here. Um, do you see this, the crisis that's going on in Thailand, as an issue specific to Thailand, or do you see it as a part of a broader international issue? Like, are the problems with democracy that Thailand is having, is it parochial to Thailand, or do you see it as, as a, a more general thing? I hate to, to believe in this theory of uniqueness. You know? uh, in my studies, you know, uh, I was told that do not believe in anyone who has anything to say about uniqueness. <laughs> Well, because if you talk about uniqueness, then you create, you create a, how to say, a shield for yourself by rejecting other people's criticism and intervention. But I mean, for your question, I would also say yes and no. Not necessarily because I believe in, the, in Thailand's unique situation, 
But when I say that, it is because I think you can see what really has happened in Thailand. You could also see this kind of thing in other countries as well. I mean, including in Turkey, right? What happened in Turkey recently uh, about uh, the weakness of democratic institution, the weakness of civilian government, the domination of power of the traditional elite, the cooperation among extra constitutional institution in order to hold on to their power too. Uh, the evil middle class and evil civil society organization who are not necessarily you know, fond of democracy as they should be. I think you could see this similar trend in anywhere else uh, in the world as well. But what I think that what makes Thailand a little bit more special, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, maybe not unique, is because we have the monarchy, right? Uh, I see. This, this again, this makes it so different from the Thai case and the Turkish case as well. Uh, the Thai monarchy, you know, has that special place in politics and has been a tremendous, tremendous force in politics that anyone, you know, who really want to understand Thai politics, you also have to understand the monarchy. The bad part of it and the dangerous part of it is that even though it is so important, politically important, but you are not allowed to discuss to discuss it. That's why you know this is part of the problem that since the the, the role of the monarchy has not been uh, clearly discussed, openly discussed in the public sphere, we kind of you know do not understand about it, and many people tend to even overlook the position of the monarchy when they are trying to find a solution to the Thai crisis, which is of course you know absurd uh, and impossible. So I would say yeah, yes, you know. It, Overall, yes, this is nothing really, really, really special. But at the same time, we have a key institution like the monarchy that make Thai case, you know, uh, how to say, <laughs> more exclusive than any other place. Pavin Chachal Valpongpan is an associate professor of politics and international relations at the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Kyoto University. He is the author of Reinventing Thailand, Taksin and His Foreign Policy, we reached him at his home in Kyoto. Global Elections Podcast is produced at the James Street Studios in Ottawa, Ontario by me, Jason Manchester. Thanks, of course, this week to Dr. Pavin Chachaval-Pongpan of the University of Kyoto and to Mark Gerstein. You can find the Global Elections Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can get a hold of me on Twitter at at JKManchester. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash global elections podcast. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes or Stitcher if you like the show. It helps people find us, and it really helps us out. Thanks for listening.